the fundamental problem which persists and in my opinion will continue to persist is the federal dichotomy or the dichotomy between federal and state law and not only that between federal law and international law because where the US is part of three international drug treaties okay. as well so it's it's much more complicated than people give it credit for so there's this dichotomy between federal law and state law uh, federal law enforcement and drug regulators you know the FDA so well we have purview over over the drug law this controlled substance act that's that's our territory uh, in the meantime states are quote unquote legalizing marijuana which many people make an argument they aren't allowed to do right. that's for legal academics to debate not us mm -hmm. but that, that's the fundamental problem one of the most interesting and challenging areas of anti-money laundering in 2018 and for several years prior is how financial institutions can manage accounts that could be connected to the sale of marijuana, either medicinal marijuana or recreational marijuana. In this edition of AML Conversations, AML Rights Horse Vice Chairman John Byrne talks with Steve Kemmerling. Steve is the CEO and founder of a company, MRB Monitor that doesn't support or oppose the banking of marijuana customers, but provides information so that institutions can make more informed decisions on whether or not their account holders are directly or indirectly managing products or businesses that have something to do with the sale of or with the enabling of the sale of marijuana. This particular interview is not designed for us to consider Steve's product, but more importantly, the need for data and the need for informed decisions. We hope you find this particular edition enlightening. The challenges will still exist, but perhaps a little more light is shined on this particular issue. We're at the uh, 17th annual ACAMS uh, Anti-Money Law and Financial Crime Prevention Conference in Vegas, and I was fortunate enough to moderate a panel this morning, Steve, of regulators. Uh, we had a series of topics, and this was not on the list, but one of the panelists said, let's not talk about banking marijuana as a topic, even though there is clear recognition that it is still a confusing and challenging area for the financial sector, but the view was that the panel really wouldn't be able to shed any new light on this. So with that as a backdrop, and certainly I understood the point and, and I didn't violate the uh, request because I, you know, what's, what's the point if somebody publicly says, well, things haven't really changed. But things really in a way, haven't changed since the first initial um, guidance, directives, whatever you want to call it. But what, what has changed, in my view, and you tell me if I'm wrong, is the, um, the, the scope of the issue. The scope seems much broader. So I want you to talk a bit about w where the challenges are today in 2018 and n numbers, if you have them, or you can do estimates in terms of states and all. And then what do clients, and we'll talk about your service and how it relates to this, but what do clients say is their biggest concern? So first first question is, 2018, what's the scope of the challenge? I won't call it a problem, although many challenge. might. What's the scope of the challenge? Um, I'm going to use dollar figures mm -hmm. as the first estimate for the scope. So uh, as we were just discussing a little bit earlier, the retail sales of North American marijuana uh, retail sales, this point of sale to the consumer is estimated about between 10 and $11 billion. North America, so that's US and Canada. Um, so that's part one, and that's probably up 
uh, 100% from, call it 2014, mm -hmm. when FinCEN memo guidance came out on this topic, uh, where 31, uh, 30, 31, 32 U.S. states, depending on how you count them, plus Canada's about to legalize recreationally. So 31 or 32 states that either allow recreational uh, or medicinal or both? Correct. Okay. Um, and yes, uh, when I... When I actually look at it in my database, we actually think about 46 states. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Because there are multiple states have decriminalized gotcha. okay. uh, marijuana or CBD, mm -hmm. not to get too uh, wonky on you, but right. CBD is derived from cannabis and still a Schedule One drug. So when you look at it that way, there's 46 out of, 40, 46 out of 50 states that wow. have either legalized, so call that 32 states that have legalized, regulated marijuana right. markets where right. they're licensed businesses, okay. regulatory oversight and monitoring. And then there's another uh, 14 states uh, that have decriminalized marijuana to some extent and or decriminalized CBD. Mm -hmm. uh, CBD stands for cannabis oil, which is derived from cannabis, okay. technically still a Schedule One drug. Mm -hmm. So the point is it's, uh, in my opinion, uh, Rampant might be a strong word, but it's it's throughout the United States. Um, it's ten billion dollars point of sale. I personally apply a multiplier on that point of sale, that retail point of sale, of one and a half to two times to account for the fact that you have in multiple states uh, a supply chain that starts with the grower and goes mm -hmm. through uh, one or two layers of middlemen between the grower to wholesalers or infused product manufacturers before it get, even gets to retail. So I think roughly you're looking at maybe. 15 to 20 billion dollars of cash from the marijuana industry mm -hmm. in at least 30 states uh, that is largely going unaccounted for with very little transparency, which was you know a big part of the, the FinCEN guidance and the whole juxtas transparency monitoring KYC. So the FinCEN guidance to to uh, refresh our audience's memories on this dealt with direction because you had the states that have done what you just described and the federal laws regarding controlled substances, right? So Correct. So give us, uh, we don't need um, hook, line, and sinkers, they right. say, but of, of all the uh, aspects of the guidance, but generally describe the problem that I just mentioned and then the guidance as you saw it. Uh, yes, yeah, so the, the and we'll make this available yeah. to the audience. We'll make it in a link so people can reread it and all that. But just in general, so, so the problem, the fundamental problem, which persists and, in my opinion, will continue to persist, is the federal dichotomy or the dichotomy between federal and state law, and not only that, between federal law and international law, because the U.S. is part of three international drug treaties okay. as well. So it's it's much more complicated than people give it credit for. So there's this dichotomy between federal law and state law, uh, federal law enforcement and drug regulators, you know, the FDA. So, well, we have purview over, over the drug law, the Controlled Substance Act. That's, that's our territory. Uh, in the meantime, states are, quote, unquote, legalizing marijuana, which many people make an argument they aren't allowed to do. Right. That's for legal academics to debate, not us. Mm -hmm. But that, that's the fundamental problem. Um, and then you, even within states, you have problems where a state legalizes marijuana and a city or county says, well, not in our city or county. So there's conflicting laws in multiple layers of the chain. So what the FinCEN marijuana banking guidance... And, and what, do we remember, I don't really remember, why 
FinCEN did it at that time? Because obviously it's been around for a bit. It's just because, the, about being facetious, the growth of the issue became such that they were getting so many questions. Is that why they did it? You'd have to ask okay. FinCEN. Yeah, that, yeah. Yeah, That's what I seem to remember. Yeah, I, I, it's hard to say why that time. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so they, yeah. in 2014 they made a decision to, to, to publish some marijuana banking guidance um, that tried to at least start to provide some guidance on this, and it's still the reference point because there's no other reference point. As, right. as we discussed, the Cole Memorandum, Cole Memorandum upon which FinCEN guidance was based, partly based, it, yeah. were rescinded. Right. So there's questions about you know uh, the strength of even the FinCEN guidance, but the point was trying to give banks some guidance, but as uh, we have to remind people that guidance is not law. Right. So that, that continues to be the problem. Laws have not changed uh, at the federal level. So the problem cons- uh, the problem remains mm-hmm. that's now four or five years old, um, but the marijuana industry has doubled or tripled, right. and it's going to get the $22 billion yeah. in the next two or three years is the estimate. North America. So, that's, so we're going to double again, and not knowing, not having a crystal ball on what federal laws may or may not pass, whether they're marijuana banking specific laws or changes to the Drug Act, um, just a lot of uncertainty. So despite FinCEN providing guidance, uh, you, still, you still have this problem. Um, but generally, I, I do generally see more financial institutions, and we're talking mainly banks here, but more financial institutions at least trying to educate themselves on the topic because it's it's doubled in size. Uh, you know, people are putting taking their head out of the sand a little bit, mm-hmm. saying you know there's it's just you, you can't. In my opinion, it's 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 tough to have a policy um, that may not reflect reality as it right. relates to, to to marijuana activity in your state, and especially if you're a multi-state financial institution, it's extraordinarily hard to to avoid having direct contact with direct marijuana businesses, let alone ancillary businesses. So um, you had the call memo, you had the FinCEN guidance, and then we had obviously a new administration and a, and, a, and a different, of course, attorney general who made it pretty clear that they were not going to follow um, previous direction. I won't even call it guidance, whatever you want to call it. So we're in a stage now where we were, in a way, before the FinCEN guidance, only because since it was partially based on the Cole Memo, which is no longer operative, uh, you could still argue, and I think our, some of our members would, or at least the, the bank members would, saying, well, look, I'm following an issued guidance which hasn't been revoked. The FinCEN guidance wasn't revoked. It's still out there. But because it is clear that the theme in this uh, Justice Department is where it's a controlled substance, whatever the, the levels that you know better than I, so you do this at your peril, but you made another point that I think is pretty interesting. I've heard anecdotally, and you would know better, that some banks are looking at this going, there's money to be made here. It, you know, And without making a moral judgment, maybe it's not even a moral but without making a legal judgment, it's going to occur in these states. So there's revenue to be had here that can help the customer, can help mm-hmm. the shareholders, and, and, and all of that. So there are some that sort of, Dive head first and say we're gonna we're gonna figure this out, but there's a great number of others um, that still say they're not going to do it and are concerned about indirect. I know I haven't asked a question yet, but sort of laying this all out for the audience, I think. So where we are in 2018 is yeah, Vincent's got a guidance, but the Justice Department is sort of 
my my words, not yours, thumb their nose at it because they've gone back to where it was prior to the guidance. But then all these other states have acted in the past year, and a lot of institutions are saying, we're going to go forward. There's not been, to my knowledge, any um, action against a financial institution to date, uh, or has there? Uh, there has been. I don't want to mention. Okay, nothing. Nothing's public, though. Uh, uh, or is it public? It, it doesn't say marijuana. It was uh, FDIC action. It okay. doesn't say marijuana in the consent order. Okay. Uh, there was an American Banker article about it. I just don't want to. Okay. Use the so, the, so the reporter discerned that it was related to this. Yeah, it was. It was a small financial institution that okay. was known to be servicing the marijuana okay. industry. Uh, the institution did not get in trouble for servicing okay. the marijuana industry. They got in trouble for not having effective policies, procedures, controls, and staffing to effectively monitor for risk and manage the uh, higher risk entities. So this institution, I'm kind of summarizing a little bit. Sure, sure. Right. Um, basically just started banking marijuana and okay. did seem to not do enough okay. to, to do it adequately, uh, you know, from, from the FDIC. So it was more of a control violation. Correct. It wasn't because yeah, gotcha. they were gotcha. serving marijuana. It was right. because they weren't adequately managing KYC okay. against due diligence and monitoring. All right. So given that, um, it's like anything else in terms of risk appetite. You have to decide as a bank, uh, Weigh the pros and cons. We, you know, bankers do that all the time, right? So this is an area where that becomes particularly uh, challenging, given everything we just said. The fact that there is guidance, but DOJ is not really dealing with it. There are states that have said yes. The feds still say you sort of deal with the states at your peril. But there's a lot more openness about this mm-hmm. than there was a few years ago. And but there are still some institutions that say we don't do this. Or at least they say we don't do this. So this is where it comes down to what I want to ask you the most about, and that's use of data to try to figure this out. Because let's make it clear. Neither you nor I are saying banks should or should not do this. We're just trying to give everybody the best information so they can, again, make decisions based on the best knowledge available, the best facts available. Is that fair? Yeah, that's yeah. absolutely fair. It's yeah. uh, even as even as the FinCEN memo reiterated and the FDIC has reiterated, you know, the decision to open or close account is up to each financial institution based on your risk tolerances sure. and appetite. Um, but but yeah, it's, it's it's how can you utilize data to make those decisions? Or in my opinion, people are think they're making decisions, but they're doing it without you know, the data to support those decisions in some cases. All right, so when we come back, we're going to talk all about data, your recommendations, uh, what a compliance department, what an institution needs to understand uh, in terms of what we just said, having all possible facts and data in front of you to make informed decisions. So we'll be right back. We hope you're enjoying this edition of AML Conversations. This podcast and many other anti-money laundering and Bank Secrecy Act related posts, podcasts, and case studies can be found on our new website at amlrightsource.com. Our team of AML BSA professionals regularly produces informative content that we hope you find resourceful. Check the AML Rightsource website or follow us on LinkedIn for updates. So Steve, um, we're now in a situation where we have some banks 
that directly uh, transact or provide account or credit relationships with marijuana entities. And we have other banks that don't do it directly, but probably do it indirectly given everything else that we're going to talk about. So we have to try to figure out um, the different categories of banks out there and sort of what the different responses should be. So you're a data guy. Um, you're in this space because you're not the only one, but you and others are providing, I won't say a solution to the problem because we, we just explained why it's still very much up in the air, but much more real-time information so that you can be as informed about your next steps as you could be, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. It's um, so. So why am I doing this? It's I, I yeah. Per, well, I, well, let's talk about yeah. let's talk about the different categories. So let's first talk about you're in. The, how long have you been involved in this space? And then talk about the different categories that we just mentioned. Banks that do it directly. Are they interested in the data? Maybe not, right? Because they're already doing it. So that, I don't want to say oh, they don't yeah, care. Yeah. What about those banks? And then let's talk about the indirect or those that just want more information. Yeah, so so let's so let's talk about the. I'll say the handful of, of banks that are knowingly banking marijuana. Mm -hmm. First of all, I'll say FinCEN comes out with quarterly uh, high-level summaries regarding marijuana-related banking. Uh, I think they got so many public records requests they just started publishing it quarterly. So their most recent report indicated 411, I believe. Uh, depository institutions. So, so they could be banks, credit unions. What other categories are you? Uh, let's see. Uh, it's basically banks or credit. Okay, unions. gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. So they call them depository institutions. Mm -hmm. So not broker dealers or insurance, but depository. Not MSBs. No, correct. Yeah. Correct. Gotcha. So um, that are knowingly banking it. I'm maybe personally aware of maybe 20 that are actually knowingly doing it. Okay. Bankers who bank marijuana are maybe aware of another 20 based okay. on the bankers who I know who, who serve who service marijuana businesses. So I think the the 400 number, uh, 400 plus number by FinCEN is, I'm sure it's accurate, but it might be a one-off account by a bank saying, hey, I, I've known this individual for 20 years and we feel comfortable accommodating one or two clients mm -hmm. who we know have marijuana connections. Or maybe it's... Uh, and this might get into the next part of the conversation. Right. Maybe it's an indirect marijuana business, an ancillary marijuana business, not a grower, processor, dispensary, but it's a, a, any, anything that services marijuana businesses. So I think uh, FinCEN ca cast a wider net on their estimate, but I'm, I'm only personally aware of, and this is based on just articles, sure. uh, maybe a couple dozen banks doing this on a proactive basis, in a meaningful basis, they have set up systems and policy to do it. So anyway, so those banks, um, as it relates to using data, they use our database or, or marijuana-related business information for two ways. Mm -hmm. This will be how it starts to differentiate. Right. They use it for both enhanced due diligence on known accounts, mm -hmm. and they also use the data to identify unknown marijuana-related exposure or accounts. Because just because they're banking, knowingly banking some marijuana businesses doesn't mean that other marijuana businesses or owners of marijuana businesses aren't trying to fly under the radar and avoid fees and enhance due diligence. So they, like any any financial institution, they're using it for both. Mm -hmm. They're using it for KYC to identify unknown accounts and risk, as well as enhance due diligence on known marijuana businesses to better understand beneficial ownership, 
beneficial ownership across state lines, mm -hmm. uh, different businesses, and you see a lot of cross-pollination. So those are financial institutions, uh, not just banks, but insurance companies, okay. et cetera, uh, broker-dealers who are knowingly doing it. But they just want information to make informed decisions, so both on known accounts and unknown accounts. Mm -hmm. Then you have uh, institutions who uh, who have a, currently have a policy that says we don't service marijuana-related businesses. Um, so they're typically using the information to screen for, filter for potential marijuana-related accounts. That includes shell companies, uh, personal accounts of beneficial owners being used to fund and or right. receive proceeds from marijuana-related businesses. This is a point I, I might want to make real quick is marijuana is still technically a, a Schedule One drug, which means it's, it's illegal. Mm -hmm. So the fact that an account is being used to fund a marijuana business and hasn't yet accepted proceeds from the business doesn't mean that that's okay, really. And the right. analogies I like to use are, well, uh, you have an account and you happen to know it's being used to set up a meth lab. Are you okay with that? If your answer is no, right. you should probably not also be okay know, having an account knowing that it's being used to fund a marijuana business. And I'm using hyperbole a little bit. But the point is there, there's a lot of flavors here. Um, but most banks who have uh, called a no marijuana policy, mm -hmm. you, you, in order to have to enforce that policy, you need a control. Most controls look at behavioral uh, behavioral traits. Uh, people walking into your into your branch with a stack full of twenties, you know, five thousand dollars, and they reek of marijuana. Those are the obvious mm -hmm. signs that your front line of defense should usually catch. Or maybe it's you know structuring the deposits, all of which are great, um, but it's also just as effective. Just like you screen for other high-risk entities that might be perfectly legal, like PEPs or MSBs, mm -hmm. to also proactively screen for for marijuana businesses. So so really, it's it's mainly those two categories. There are there are more banks in the middle that are in the act of trying to wrap their brain around the marijuana industry, understand what is a marijuana-related business, how do we define that? Because we have a policy, even FinCEN guidance just says marijuana-related business. So what does that mean? So tell me, what do you think marijuana-related business should mean to a prospective or current client? <laughs> Great question. I, I have a framework. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the framework that I wrote, the uh, article for ACAMS today, right. defining marijuana-related business, that was based on feedback that I got. I'm not going to claim that I came up with it. But it was based on what I was hearing from banks. So in general, and this is a framework to be tweaked as everyone sees fit for their own policies, we, we categorize... MRB, marijuana-related businesses. And honestly, we should probably start using cannabis-related businesses because I've seen some good articles about sure. cannabis versus marijuana. We'll just bear with me. And yep. They're still kind of marijuana-related yep. businesses. Fall into, we have three main categories. Those that are generally licensed by a, by a government agency to grow, process, or sell marijuana, yep. generally state level. Um, those are what we call tier one businesses uh, or direct marijuana-related businesses. They've touched the plant. I think it's important to remember, or the way we think about them at MRB Monitor is uh, the license status, this is getting a little wonky on you, but the status of a marijuana business's license to us doesn't matter too much. Meaning okay. some financial institutions will say, well, we, we only don't want to service marijuana businesses with active licenses. Let's go back to the example I was just talking about. Right. They're okay, and this is fine, I'm not critiquing anyone's policies, but they're saying, okay, well, we know this particular business is in the act of applying for a marijuana license. We're okay with that. 
because the account hasn't yet received in funds from an illegal activity, even though the funds in the account are being used for an illegal activity. But regardless, there's... So within marijuana licensing, you have businesses in the act of going through a licensing process, which varies by state. We, we include them in the database as soon as they get in that process. Sure. Those that are maybe... A, they're chosen, they're awarded a license, but it's not yet active. So if you have 100 people applying for a cultivation license, a state will pick 10. 90, the 90 losers are called failed applicants in inactive status. But those 10 that were awarded typically have to go through another 6 to 12 months of licensing and oversight before the license becomes active. So you would get that, you'd be able to get that information if somebody's applied. Yeah. Okay. So we, we start as soon as they're in the application cycle. Okay. Because because our clients, our clients vary. And we, we, want, we want to give them all of the flavors, if yeah. you will. Some some are totally fine with those in that process of applying. And that that's fine because maybe they lose a license, maybe they, they never touch the marijuana business, but others aren't. So we're trying to give everyone the full sure. soup to nuts, if you will. And then you also, on the flip side, after active licenses, you also have unlicensed marijuana businesses. Those are, that have, those are ones that have never been licensed to grow or produce, but they're known marijuana businesses. Um, no, known how? Because they exist in Los Angeles and okay. they're, they're a dispensary. Um, the way we identify unlicensed marijuana businesses is typically through public records requests to law enforcement who okay. sent cease and desist letters. So, again, without getting uh, no, that's right. tangent, but yep. that's, that's a good question. How do you identify an unlicensed marijuana business? Sure. Happy to talk about that further with anyone. Uh, but there are ways to identify unlicensed marijuana businesses. And there's also inactive licenses, which we, we include all the businesses in the database, but we give, there's enough nuance in the data and to filter and sort by the status of the business. And that's just direct. So indirect businesses right. are... Oh, our tier, we call them tier two. They're basically ancillary businesses. They provide service and products. They sell service and products to tier one direct businesses. So whether it's, there's a whole host of them. There's no real definition. It's basically 50%, and that's just an arbitrary number I came up with. 50% of revenue comes from tier one businesses. So they're selling products and services. Give, give me an example of a product um, I would sell to you as a marijuana grower. Uh, there's a lot of marijuana licensed consultancies uh, or attorneys, CPAs, who specialize just in marijuana. So you can make a reasonable argument that 100%... Uh, so they're providing advice to counsel? Whatever, whether it's a product or service, yes. Right, but get, yes. an example of a product. So are we talking sure. about light, uh, light, fertilizer, light bulbs? Lights, yeah, yeah, that kind of Fertilizers, stuff. Okay. lights, uh, general contractors who are specializing sure. in building dispensary or cultivation facilities. Um, generally, it's, it's marijuana-specialized product and vendors, uh, product and service vendors. I, I'm real curious about that part of it because, you know, we've, we've just talked about how outside of your FDIC example, there's been really no um, prosecution or whatever you, whatever the, the action would be against an institution yet, right? But obviously, if you're doing it directly, you run that, you clearly run that risk. If you're doing it indirectly, what I'm curious about is, as a financial institution, okay, uh, Joe's Nursery down the street sells to everybody, right? And also sells to the marijuana uh, dispensary. I heard you say before. Tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, uh, sort of a fifty percent thought in your head, or is it? Because here's what I'm thinking: is if a bank looks at that and says, "Hey, this company, uh, Joe's Nursery, we believe is selling some of what they grow." 
to or some of what you know whatever the right. tools are needed to the dispensary. We think, but we also know they've been in the they've been in the neighborhood for you know thirty years and do a lot of sort of quote normal right. to abuse a uh, <laughs> an acronym um, <laughs> uh, activity. So you know, I would I, as, a, as a risk officer, I'd look at that and say, I I get it, but I'm not as worried about that. But what do your clients say about that? Because that, that, to me, is really interesting. Because you're, yeah. you're 100% right. There's all this indirect activity that you have to right. at least have the information so you can make the informed decision. Right. Talk a bit about that. It, it, I think it, it's evolving. I, yeah. think, okay. I think banks are having the discussion among themselves, largely, and here at conferences like mm-hmm. ACAMs mm-hmm. and with, with their regulators. is 50% is is somewhat arbitrary number. But it sounds logical. I mean, I'm it's not disagreeing. More than half. Yeah, so sure, sure. That, was, that yeah. was just purely from a framework. I've talked to banks that will include anyone who sells as little as 10 to 15%, mm-hmm. yeah. which is really low. And, yeah. and I say, well, how do you know? Right. I, I don't know. Right. Um, so how do you know? And others are 30, 30 to 35%. That's, there's no... No, I get there, it. There's no hard uh, rule. Yeah, no, and that. it sort of reminds me of the beneficial ownership argument. Exactly. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so, exactly. But in, even if it's you know, and use beneficial ownership, even yeah. if you're, at, what if you're at fifteen percent? And you know, yeah. that's up to well, what's the entity? Like, right. if, in my opinion, and this is Steve Kemmerling's opinion, is, and I let's talk about beneficial ownership mm-hmm. just for a second. As sure. it relates to marijuana businesses, some banks I talked to are like, well, we only want beneficial owners of marijuana businesses over, I'll say ten, ten percent or twenty percent or twenty five percent. And my point is, are you sure? Because that logic applies when the business is legal. I think you should be aware of, personally, of any beneficial owner of any percentage over zero of the marijuana business mm-hmm. because it is and continues to be an illegal business. Yeah, Try telling your regulator, well, the guy only owned 5% of the cocaine distribution. Right, right. We didn't feel that it was necessary for us, for us to check. So that's, sure. And again, I, I use hyperbole, but... No, no By sense. the way, cocaine is technically a legal drug, and so is meth. Yeah. On the, on the controlled substance act, so... So I... I no, that, no, that's, no, 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 that's, that's exactly what I was thinking about. So, um, you know, we're, we're obviously trying not to make this a specific uh, product conversation, and we haven't at all. But I am very interested. So you're in a space with a few other companies, but, yeah. you're, in a, but you're in a space. You've made a decision that you could provide this. Uh, you can you can combine and col- my words collate and compri- put all the data together so that it, I, as the AML officer, can make an informed decision. So you've talked about direct. You've talked about indirect. So there's obviously a list of companies right. that are considered indirect, or a list of, of the types of activities, rather. Um, you've talked about public records right. uh, that you get that information. Uh, what other source material would that be? And, and, and like I said, I'm not asking you to any proprietary information about your particular product, but I'm sitting down across from you and I'm saying, okay, I want to have the best information possible before I make a decision on account policies regarding certain categories. Right. You know, I'm in this situation where, to your earlier point, the regulators want to know, do you have a policy? Are you doing training? Correct. You know, and so give us um, sort of, not the list, but sort of a, an overview of the of the source of data that you're able sure. to put together. Um, and I imagine most of this stuff... Potentially is free, but a lot of it's not. so you you're doing what you can. But you're yeah. you're providing the same service, frankly. That 
don't want to use another company. Well, I won't use their company. But other companies that do, that do say they do OFAC screening. Right. It's public information, but they, they are able to put it all together so I don't have to. Correct. Right. It, it's, it's a curated library mm-hmm. of publicly available, but not always easy to get information. Mm-hmm. So um, and this is what I tell banks or financial institutions who I talk to who are considering using my product or, or not. Say, so, well, do, first of all, do something, in my opinion. Yeah. Even if it's not using my product, you if you're a small financial institution in whatever state, let's say you have one or two locations in a state like Arizona or New Mexico, there aren't that many marijuana businesses there. Uh, let me rephrase, tier one marijuana businesses, right? right, right. To use my own right. terminology. So do something. You, you can do this internally. A lot, a lot of banks were, are doing this internally. They're generating their own information from public sources. Um, I think we just, this is all we do all day long. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the information is not online. Uh, a lot of it is offline. Or it's hidden deep in 1,000-page marijuana license applications, which is where you can get beneficial ownership information. It's a tedious process of going from generally state to state to state, figuring out who are the regulatory authorities, licensing and monitoring each of those businesses. And just starting with that, that's just the starting place. Sure. Uh, whereas... Just starting with that is kind of the tip of the iceberg argument. Not argument. It, it's better than nothing. Sure. Start with just a list, and if that's all you got to do, that's that's better than nothing. Um, but what we do is collate's a great word. It's, you're aggregating information from multiple sources, mm-hmm. starting with the license authority, appending it with, if you can, with Secretary of State information, maybe some online presence if they have a, a website. But then you start to get you start to move from what we call primary sources, which are government sources, the the marijuana licensing agency in charge. Uh, exhaustively getting all information you can from them, uh, then appending that with other publicly available information to build out fro- full profiles of these businesses mm-hmm. so you can have effective screening, effective profiles. And you start to piece uh, piecemeal across the country as well, which is unique to us. It's, it's a relational database, not just a list, meaning mm-hmm. you see the same owners or businesses operating throughout the country and you start to link all of that information together, which just gives you a more effective uh uh, relationship network. It just makes the data stronger. So it's it's not rocket science. It's it's just mainly good human intelligence. Sure. Um, it, it's it's hard to do public records. You're just pulling hundreds of sources, and you have to standardize, organize, deduplicate among all those sources. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, if I was sitting down 20 years ago, not 25 years ago, whatever it would be, even though OFAC's been around a lot longer, it really hasn't resonated in the AML community t- until 20 plus years ago. Mm-hmm. I'd be doing the same thing. I'd be sitting down with somebody saying, all right, this stuff is available, but um, i got a business to run. Right. I've got to figure out. Right. And if there's, a, if there's an entity out there that could put this together for me in that way, uh, it just makes me more efficient Correct. in my, what I prioritize. Correct. And, and, and I mean, that's the, the, the PEPs and SDNs and mm-hmm. other high-risk entities. Uh, people have been doing this. This, this is just... To, to understand marijuana, it's, it's a much more complex industry than I think most people in the banking world give it credit for because they don't do what I do all day long. This sure. is all I think about, but it's it's much more complex, and you have to consider, or I consider things like medical versus recreational, cultivation versus processing versus dispensary, licensed versus unlicensed versus in the act of being licensed, um, and trying to tie all of that together in one cohesive database is, is challenging and time-consuming, and not anything I would want, I think, any compliance analyst should be tasked to do. Yeah, and I think given everything that's out there, uh, the sort of the competing priorities, right. 
especially now since we don't know where this is going to end up and even if you were to get a change in uh, the Justice Department that said that you know we're going to my words go easy or we're going to sort of look and make sure that the policies and procedures you're still gonna need you're still gonna need the information correct and, and that's not people, gonna go away yeah, I, I don't yeah. I don't think so I want to start the business if, right. if I did but yeah, it, yeah. people uh, many people out with whom I talk compare it to MSBs and, and again this is just sure. projecting down the future it's today it's illegal high risk technically federally legal and it's high risk for that reason Tomorrow, with the hypothetical federal legalization, I did an unscientific survey, but 90% of compliance officer respondents, 90% said, this will still be high risk even after federal legalization. Uh, maybe over a long enough timeline, probably after, hopefully after we've retired. Right. It, you know, may, maybe someday it approaches that, but it, it will remain, and I was just having a conversation earlier, it will probably remain cash intensive because banks will probably consider it high risk. They'll charge more fees. They'll have enhanced due diligence. Um, and like it or not, the industry itself will be prone, more prone for illicit behavior than industries that don't deal in Schedule One right. or Schedule Two or marijuana-related products than ice cream stores. So, so, and this all comes back to why I think today, just now, like right now, at this conference, I think banks are starting to ask, well, we need to think about this a little bit closer. No marijuana, quote unquote, is too broad yeah. because it's just unreasonable. So we need to come up with a more effective. Questions asked: Do you have a written policy? If you do have a, if you don't have a written policy, if you don't have a policy, step one: write a policy. Right. Step two: How do you define marijuana businesses? And then step three is: How do you go about enforcing that? And whether you're using my data, aggregating information on your own, or using a, you know another vendor's information, is it's, it's do something. It, the problem's too big to continue to ignore. So let me get. I really appreciate the time, and I think this is uh, this, what this will do is focus us to get information out to the listeners here, the previous guidance, your article from ACAMPS today, I'm sure we can get a link to that, uh, but let me get you out on this comment, you know, this thought, or your thoughts on this, and that would be, um, given all of this, what sort of training do you recommend, you know, data is one thing, but what sort of training should AML professionals have or institute in their institutions just so they can be as aware as possible of this. Besides, we said the guidance document, okay, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. policy. You know, what would you what would you recommend, or what have you seen some of your clients do in terms of training, or do they just that's, simply look at this question. information gap? Uh, it's yeah. I don't have a, I don't have a good answer, which mm-hmm. is which is unfortunate, but I think it's symptomatic of this is and I don't uh, have either. So. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a nascent. We say it's a nascent industry. The marijuana industry has been legalized in California, Alaska since the '90s, but. It, that's evolving. I, I don't think um, I don't think there's a good answer. That the banks that are servicing marijuana have been figuring it out and kind of getting binary yes no nods from regulators who won't say anything. Right. But it's more of a hey well, they didn't critique us on this. So it's it's more of an evolutionary process where they're figuring out what works. Uh, but the challenge is, is it's still <laughs> technically legal. So even if if you get a new regulator, if, you're, if your actual regulator is coming into your institution switches, he or she might have a totally different opinion than the prior regulator, and that, that's true at any time. Um, I don't know, if it, FinCEN changes its mind, uh, or whomever changes sure. their mind. It's, to, to one point you're making, I just want to point out, although the call memo has been pulled back, the DOJ has not 
proactively gone after marijuana businesses yet. Right. Um, we have seen some crackdowns on licensed marijuana businesses doing bad things. Um, but even the states are, are aware of that and trying to better monitor and enforce their own laws without the DEA yet or other federal agencies getting involved. But I do anticipate seeing more states more proactively going after their own black markets to avoid unnecessary attention from the federal DOJ and DEA. Yeah, look, at the end of the day, this is a moneymaker for institutions, which is important to look at, but you also want to go in with the proper risk decisioning, risk mitigation, what have you, and the best way to do that is to have as much data. So any last thoughts? No, I think that, that sums it up. It's... Um, you know, it was at the top of the conversation we were using terms like marijuana or this, and the point I was just trying to make was uh, just define what this is to you. Right. Um, define what marijuana-related business is to you, and if you don't like my framework, come up with your own. Um, some people might want five tiers. Uh, some might want two tiers, binary, yes, no. Anything over zero is, right. is you know. Um, but that's a really good question about education and training is that's evolving that's kind of Darwinism right now. It's like it's evolving. Banks are talking amongst themselves. Whether or not you bank marijuana or not, is everybody's, I think, generally talking at your local state associations, your credit mm-hmm. union associations, mm-hmm. your community bank associations, your informal peer group meetings. Everybody's having these conversations, and I think that's just going to evolve on its own. But there, unfortunately, is, as of today, no direct training. Because even if, even if you paid for training... Yeah. It's, it's unenforceable. So like, right, right. And as I started this conversation, I said, you know, we had a panel this morning where the panel didn't want to talk about this. And that tells you that we are in a state where we do need data and we do need information. So, Steve, yeah. I want to thank you um, for spending the time. This is a very, as you know, a very interesting area. More to come on this. And as I mentioned, we'll make sure that the listeners get as much information that, that we have available today um, can always change, but you know it, it's clear to me. We first started doing these conferences that the, the touch on this issue probably when the when the first FinCEN memo came out. Mm-hmm. So it's been four years or whatever, and there's almost always a session on it. But the sessions are starting to get a little more vibrant, my word, because uh, you used to go to some of them. They'd say, "Well, everybody thinks don't do it," and you know all the issues. But now it's more. Here's a way you can do it. In fact, I've actually seen. Uh, at some state association sessions, which how to bank marijuana mm-hmm. clients. So I think that's a, an evolution that makes sense to have as much uh, information so you can decide, your board of directors can decide, management can decide, but whatever it is, you can't do it without data. Yeah, and then one, one last comment on that. Anyone pitching on how to bank marijuana, um, in my opinion, unless it's coming from a banker that banks marijuana, um, it's just my opinion is, you know, that's considered the source. If, if it, and I don't say this pejoratively towards anyone, but unless it's a banker who's lived through exams yep. from regulators that are servicing marijuana, I don't know if anyone else is qualified to, to really talk about it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Steve, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks. Interesting and complicated area dealing with um, sort of convoluted um, Direction, right? You have the states that have made the sale of marijuana in some cases legal. Obviously, at the federal level, it's still considered a controlled substance. You've had FinCEN attempt, um, in good faith, to try to give some direction, and we will um, include the um, 
links to the FinCEN guidance on uh, the AML Right Source website. But given all of that, in 2018, if you are directly banking marijuana businesses, no matter what state you're in, you're taking a chance. I think what uh, Steve Kemmerling offers, uh, he is one of several companies that do this, and he, his information can be found on mrbmonitor.com. It's providing data, information, so that you can make a decision. You still have to decide what your risk appetite is, but again, um, given that there's no clear solution, it continues to be an issue that AML professionals grapple with, clearly here in the States, um, and it's going to continue to be for for the time period uh, that we're in and the um, oversight that we see right now. There's, there's not a lot of direction, as I mentioned up front. Really enjoyed the conversation with Steve. I hope you found it valuable. This is John Byrne for AML Right Source for AML Conversations saying we will talk to you next time.